0: So like I said, we're in the second week uh, of this passage, and last week, Darren, he covered two main topics as he looked at the text. Uh, He first looked at the metaphor that's in the first uh, three verses of chapter four and how it points to and explains the phrase in verse four, when the time came to completion. And he looked at why Jesus Christ came at the correct time, how he came at the correct time spiritually, how he came at the correct time religiously, the correct time culturally, in the correct time politically. And secondly, he looked at the rest of verse 4, where God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and answered the question, who was this baby born 2,000 years ago? And his conclusion from the Scriptures is that that baby... Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Is God in the flesh. And this morning we're going to focus mostly on the remainder of the passage, verses 5 through 7, to try to answer the question, why? Why did Jesus come into the world? That's obviously a massive question with numerous answers. So there's zero chance that we will do justice to that question in just 30 to 40 minutes. But we do want to be faithful to the text. We do want to dig into the reasons that are listed in the passage. So focusing on our particular passage this morning, we have two main answers to the question, Why did Jesus come into the world? They are this, So we might receive adoption, and so we might receive God's Spirit. So we might receive adoption, and so we might receive God's Spirit. So the first answer is that we might receive adoption. Verse 4 of Galatians 4, When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus, he came into the world so that we could be redeemed and adopted by him. Now, adoption is a life-altering event for any child. You go from being an orphan to having parents. Uh, You go from no real siblings to oftentimes loving and caring siblings. You go from a lack of identity to a true and desired identity as somebody's child. You go from feeling abandoned to feeling loved. And adoption is no different for Christians. It's both a life-altering event and an eternity-altering event. There's so much that changes the moment that we are redeemed and adopted by God. And while looking at this passage, what I thought would be helpful is for us to look at a few different categories of our life before and then after adoption. I think this is helpful for two reasons. And one of those is uh, for, for those of you that are here that have been adopted by God, who have become followers of Jesus Christ. I think that looking at the contrast between your life before being adopted by God and your life after being adopted by God will give you a deep sense of gratitude for what Christ has done in your life. And I think that such a large part of the Christian life is just remembering what God has done for us. Secondly, I think that looking at the contrast will be helpful for those of you that are here this morning, but are not Christians, uh, who are not true followers of Christ. Or maybe you grew up in the church, or maybe this is your first time in the church. Maybe you would identify as someone who believes that God exists, or maybe you would be a little bit skeptical of that claim. You know, some of you may consider yourself a morally upright person, whereas others of you, you are ashamed when you look deep inside of yourself. Uh, regardless of how you would answer any of those questions, though, the Bible is clear that everyone who has not believed and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ is in the same position before God. So I think it's helpful for you to know what the Bible says that position is. And so three categories where adoption radically changes someone that we're going to look at are this, your father, your freedom, and your final judgment. Your father, your freedom, in your final judgment. Now, I'm an accountant by trade. I did accounting for About 12 years before coming to work for the church, and so naturally I love charts and I love tables. And so we're going to toss these categories into a table. And then our our headings in that table, they're going to be this: they're going to be non-Christian and Christian. So I want to look at how the Bible describes each of these each of these three categories for those of you that are not Christians and for those of you that are Christians. And so to clarify, I'm not talking about cultural Christianity. I'm not talking about if you grew up in a Christian household or if you have read the Bible. When I use those terms, I mean a Christian is someone who has repented and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that they believe the gospel, that they worship Jesus as king, that they have their sin paid for at the cross. And a non-Christian would be everyone else that does not fall into that category. So our first category is your father your father. Now there's a reason why I didn't label those columns orphan and son or orphan and adopted, for example. Uh, the Bible actually describes non-believers not as being orphans, but as having a father. You know, in John 8, we have Jesus. He's interacting with a large crowd of Jews, and the exchange goes like this. So this is John chapter 8, starting in verse 37. Jesus said, I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? because you cannot listen to my word you are of your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus he says that their father is the devil that they want to carry out their father's desires. You know those are those are fighting words. Uh, the scriptures they don't see that be, they don't say that believers are orphans with no father providing instruction into their life. No rather non-Christians they are carrying out the desires of their father the devil. And this is a sobering reality. So we can fill out our table a bit. The father of non-Christians is the devil. But let's contrast this with our passage in Galatians 4, where it says this in verse 6, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. For those of us who are redeemed, we have a new father. Our father is God the Father. He is the one that we can call Abba or Daddy. And there are no shared parental rights. There are no supervised visits. When someone comes into the kingdom of God and is redeemed, their father is no longer the devil, but it is God the Father. It is a new family and a new identity, and it happens instantaneously and the implications of this, they are tremendous. Do you realize that if you are a Christian here today, that regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your past or present family situation, that you have a father who deeply cares and loves you? And that if you're not a Christian, do you realize that the Bible says that similar to the unbelieving Jews in Jesus' time, that your father is the devil? And so upon adoption, your father changes. Your father changes. Second category is your freedom. Your freedom. You know, freedom is a major topic that is covered in the Scriptures. You know, you'll find concepts of freedom and slavery all throughout. It's interesting at our equip conference that we had last weekend, uh, Sean McDowell, he was talking a bit about freedom. He talked about how the culture believes that freedom is doing whatever you want, whenever you want, and however you want. People believe that that is ultimate freedom, no restrictions. However, the scriptures would view freedom very differently. In the same chapter of John 8 that we looked at, but in the preceding verses, we have this exchange between Jesus and a large group of Jews. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. At its most fundamental level, non-Christians are enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to the flesh. They are enslaved and held captive by this world. And there is no freedom in that. You know, and so if you are not a Christian here this morning, and something that has prevented you from really looking at the claims of Christ is the belief that becoming a Christian will mean losing all your freedoms, Uh, the Bible wants you to know that you have never been more enslaved than you are right now, that you have no freedoms to lose. So prior to adoption, a non Christian is a slave, they are a slave to sin. What about after adoption? How does the Bible describe freedom and slavery for the Christian? Well, there are two main ways. If we jump back into our passage in John 8, the entire dispute with the Jews arose when Jesus said this to a small segment of the crowd. So John eight thirty one. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, we see a clear discrepancy between the freedoms of a Christian and a non-Christian. You know, for the non-believer, it was, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But for the believer, it is, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. For those of us who have been adopted by God, we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin. Do we still have the flesh? Yes. Is there still a spiritual battle that is raging on? Yes. Yes. Will we stumble and sin? Yes, but you are free. You're no longer held captive. You're no longer a slave to sin if you have been adopted by the Father, that the blood of Jesus Christ has set you free. The other way that our freedom is described post-adoption is being slaves to righteousness. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Romans 6 says this, but thank God that Although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So it isn't as though we went from being slaves to sin, to being free to do whatever we want to do. That would still be continued slavery, but rather we went from being slaves to sin, slaves to the devil, slaves to our flesh, to being slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. And this is true freedom. So to help fill out our table, believers are free from sin and they are slaves to righteousness. And so we have your Father and your freedom. Lastly, we have this, your final judgment. Your final judgment. You know, is freedom from sin in this life an unbelievable reality for Christians? Absolutely. It is a tremendous blessing. However, there is a greater blessing that awaits those who have been adopted by God. In the same way, there is a greater curse that awaits those who have not been adopted by God. But this reality will not be fully realized until we stand before the Lord in judgment. You know, the judgment of God is an undeniable reality of the Scriptures. I just want to share two of many available Scriptures to paint this picture. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. After this judgment. The final judgment of God is a reality that all of us, Christians and non-Christians, must come to grips with. And so what will be the reality of non-Christians, of those who have not been adopted on that day of judgment? Let's go to the scriptures. In Matthew 13, Jesus, he explains a previously spoken parable. Matthew 13, 40, he says, Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will, be thrown, they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 20, in verse 11, John, he says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled away from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened." Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, nothing in Scripture, it points to sinners who do not trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ experiencing anything other than eternal torment upon their death. Certainly an uncomfortable and an unpopular topic, but is not one that lacks biblical clarity. For non-Christians, the verdict will be guilty and the punishment will be hell. And if a guilty verdict and eternity separated from Christ is a future for non-Christians, what about Christians? Are we without sin? Are we without works that deserve judgment? You know, we're certainly just as deserving of hell as non-Christians. But the difference for us is found in our passage in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christians, we have been redeemed, we've been bought. The price for our sins has been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're no longer viewed as guilty in the eyes of the Lord, but as perfectly innocent, as righteous, not because of any merit or work of ourselves, but only because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Colossians 2, Colossians 2 it provides clarity on how this can actually happen. How can a guilty sinner be seen as innocent before a holy and righteous God? Colossians 2.13 says this, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross." Our sin, it created a debt. There existed a certificate of debt, one that must be paid. That debt, it was against us. That debt was opposed to us. But when Christ was nailed to the cross, He erased that debt. That it was done away with. It was paid in full. Because of that, we are no longer guilty, but innocent. That there's no record of our debt in the eyes of God. A totally clean record. And what will that produce for those who have been adopted by God for all of eternity? Revelation 21 says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This is the eternal future for all believers, for all who entrust their souls to the care of Jesus Christ. And this is the adoption into the family of God. Our table, it can summarize this adoption. It says, From our father, the devil, to God, our, our Abba, Father. From slavery to sin, To freedom from sin and instead life giving slavery to righteousness. From guilt and eternal damnation on Judgment Day to innocence and an eternity worshiping Christ in heaven. All of that is brought about by our adoption. And this adoption is one of the reasons Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years ago. The second reason in our passage is that we see we might receive God's Spirit, that we might receive God's Spirit. Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, something amazing happens when we are adopted by God, and that is He sends His Spirit into our hearts. This is a tremendous blessing. Again, we can't really do enough justice to it to try and just communicate the importance of what happens when God sends us His Spirit this morning. However, I want to look at four things that the Spirit of God does. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Uh, There are certainly other things that that the Scriptures would speak to, other things that people have experienced personally in their life. But hopefully this is a list that will encourage you as you think about the reality of God dwelling in you through His Holy Spirit. So four things that the Spirit of God does. First, the Spirit of God marks and seals us. The Spirit of God marks and seals us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. When a person hears and believes the gospel, when they truly believe, the Holy Spirit is immediately placed into that person. There is no act that needs to take place prior to that. No baptism is needed. No public confession. No Bible reading plan completed. The Spirit is received. And that Spirit marks them as one of Christ. And that mark is a seal. It's a seal. It says that we are His. And it is is a seal that cannot be removed. And I used to think that the process for God separating Christians from non-Christians on Judgment Day was going to be really, really difficult for the Lord. I, I, I thought of it somehow like March Madness, that there'd be tons of teams competing for just those 68 spots. And obviously there's some teams that are guaranteed to make it, You know, you have your One Seeds, your Arizona or your Purdue. And then obviously there are some that aren't going to make it, you know, like a Bethune-Cookman, for example. But then there are these bubble teams. There's there's these teams kind of hovering right on the bubble and that there would be difficulty deciding, you know, who are the last four in and the first four out. So, you have a committee. They just meet in a hotel room and they compare resumes and they decide who's going to be in and who is going to be out. And I thought of Judgment Day in a similar fashion that it would be this arduous process. It would be very complicated, a lot of second guessing, a lot of opinions. But it isn't like that at all. The question is simple Does God's Spirit live inside you? Does God's Spirit live inside you? If the answer to that question is yes, then you are marked, you are sealed. Your inheritance, it has its down payment until the Lord redeems possession of it. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you are not the Lord's. It's that simple. So this is the first thing that the Spirit of God does. And it happens immediately after adoption, immediately upon belief. You're marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The second thing the Spirit of God does is unite us. Unite us. The Spirit of God it unites us in two main ways. First, it unites us with God the Father. Galatians 4:6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba. Father. You know, prior to belief and prior to adoption, we are described as enemies of God, that we are not united with God, but rather separated or at odds. A large chasm exists between us and the Lord. That there is no unity. But upon belief, we now have a father, and not just a formal father figure, but one that we can call daddy, an Abba Father. And there is great unity there. Secondly, the Spirit unites us with other believers. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in all you know prior to adoption into the family of god what united us with other people and most likely it's common interests or rooting for the same sports team or a shared experience or a family lineage or heritage whatever it may be there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things, but they don't provide the same unifying power as the gospel. You know, at its core, the gospel is a message that unifies and unites believers together. There may be zero common interests. You may root for different sports teams. You may come from totally different family lineages or different ethnicities, but yet be fully united by the gospel. And this is a work accomplished only by the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that there are no divisions in the church, no church splits, or no drama between believers? Certainly not, but those are not things that are led by the Spirit. Those are a result of living according to the flesh. At its core, the Spirit of God unites us with other believers, and the Spirit of God unites us with God. Third, the Spirit of God empowers us. The Spirit of God empowers us. I have two passages that I want to share to highlight this. The first is Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. Ephesians 3, it says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being." through His Spirit. To be strengthened with power in your inner being through His Spirit. You know, our strength is through the Holy Spirit. It does not come from digging deeper. It doesn't come from thinking more clearly. It does not come from trying harder. The power in our inner being comes through the Holy Spirit. This is so often counterintuitive to me. You know, when the going gets tough, I oftentimes just grit my teeth. I suck it up and I push through, just trying with all of my might. But God tells us that there is no power there. The power is not in ourselves. The power is in Him through His Holy Spirit. We must recognize and believe this if we are to run the race with endurance. The second passage is Acts 1. 4 to 8. This is when Jesus is with his disciples after his resurrection. It says this, starting in verse 4 of Acts 1. While he, being Jesus, was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days." So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." the Holy Spirit was so necessary for empowerment that Jesus told his disciples to stay and to wait for it. Could they have gotten a jump start on evangelizing the world? They could have, but they would have lacked the necessary power for that assignment. And what does the Spirit empower us to do? In Acts 1, it is an empowerment for ministry, an empowerment for functioning as a witness to a lost and dying world. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's an empowerment to build up the body of Christ through the giving of spiritual gifts to individual believers for the common good. In Galatians 5, it is an empowerment to not gratify the sinful desires of our flesh. Ultimately, it's an empowerment to glorify God. And for that task, to glorify God, we need God's power. And thanks be to God that He empowers us through His Holy Spirit to do that. The last thing that we're going to look at that the Spirit of God does is changes us. God's Spirit changes us. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're all being transformed into the same image from glory to glory and this is from the Lord. Who is the Spirit? You know, God loves to transform people, not just from eternal judgment to eternal life, but in the here and now, in this life, on this earth, that we are being transformed as believers into the likeness of Christ. And how is that done? It is done by the Lord through His Spirit. On a more practical level, Galatians 5, it says this in verse 16, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife... Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, grousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is not against such things now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It is such a blessing just to sit back and think about how the Lord changes us over time. Is it not to Reflect back on your life five months ago or five years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it might be. It's wild to see how God changes your desires, changes your habits, changes your actions, changes your reactions. This is described as the fruit of the Spirit. And it is a result of yielding our lives to the Spirit, to work inside of us. You know, there's some things that the Spirit changes instantly, Maybe overnight, he might completely take away a sinful desire, or he might implant in you a righteous desire. There are other things that might take months or years or even decades to see changed in your life. So, if you are here and if you are fighting for change right now, I want to encourage you not to lose hope. This is an area that you're doing battle in. Don't give up, don't give in you know, yield that area to the work of the Spirit. Ask God through the power of His Spirit to change you, because that is what He does. He changes us through His Spirit. So God's Spirit, it marks us, it unites us, it empowers us, and it changes us. And to close, two questions that I want to ask, and they are two ways to really ask the same question. The first, have you been adopted into the family of God? I didn't ask if you identify as a Christian. I didn't ask if you go to church or if you read your Bible. But have you been redeemed and adopted into the family of God? The only safe and secure place for our souls, both in this life and in the life to come, is in the family of God. So I want to ask, have you been adopted into the family of God? Secondly, do you possess the Holy Spirit? Do you possess the Holy Spirit? Does the third person, the Godhead, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, live inside of you? Has He marked you? Has He united you with the Father and with other believers? Does He empower you for a life of godliness? Has He changed you? In the Christmas season, it can mean so much to so many different people. And I'm thankful that amidst all that is taking place around us, we can sit and rest in the birth of Christ, truly believing that as Galatians 4 says, when the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You sent Your Son. We thank You that Christ was born of a woman, or that He was human flesh. But We also thank You that He was God, or that He was the perfect sacrifice, God, sufficient to pay for and atone our sins. God, we thank You that because of that sacrifice, that we can be redeemed. Lord, that You can cancel the debt that our sin requires because Jesus Christ paid for that debt, that it was nailed to the cross, all of its obligations. Lord, we thank you that you adopt us into your family. or when we believe we are adopted, that we get a new father. or that we have a new family. Lord, we thank you that you also give us your spirit. Lord, that when we are adopted, we receive your Holy Spirit. God, that it marks us, that we are yours because your spirit lives inside of us. God, that it unites us with your bride, the church, it unites us with God. Lord, that it does empower us for a life ministry, Lord, a life of building up the church through our spiritual gifts. Lord, for a life of godliness. And that it does change us, Lord, that it changes us, changes our desires, God, in so many ways. And so we just praise you for that truth. Pray that we would rest in that, God. That we would just be filled with great hope this season because of the work you've done in our lives. God, so we just pray all this in Jesus' name.